City University Television presents the American Theater Wing Seminars. Working in the theater. This seminar, producing. Very warm welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminar on Working in the Theatre. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the American Theatre Wing. And once again, we are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. These seminars offer a rare opportunity to hear what it is to work in the theatre, the realities of working in the theatre, from an extraordinary list of performers, producers, playwrights, directors, designers, casting agents, press agents, union, and guild leaders. And since the wing first introduced them some 25 years ago, nearly 1,000 of Broadway's and Off-Broadway's best have been our seminar guests. The wing is founder of the Tony Awards. Of many of you know this, but it is what you might not know is that it is given for distinguished achievement in the craft of theater. And it continues to stand for that excellence in the theater through low these many years. However, many of you do not know what we do all year round, which is a great deal. For example, our year round programs take in these seminars and programs are dedicated to serving the community and the theater. And we also honor excellence by helping to develop new audiences, discriminating audiences. To do this, we have created audience development programs for students. We have Introduction to Broadway, begun seven years ago, which has now enabled over 70,000 high school students who attend a Broadway show and frequently meet and question the cast. The majority of the students for the very first time, and also the first time on Broadway. Then there's our newest program, Theater in Schools. This Theater in Schools program brings professionals like those that you will meet today, and they go directly into classrooms to work with and talk to students about working in the theater. What is ahead for them as they enter the world of theater? Of course, there is the Wing's legendary hospital program, which dates back to World War II and the stage door canteen. And through it, performers from Broadway, off-Broadway, and the cabaret world have entertained more than 75,000 patients in nursing homes, veterans' hospitals, children's wards, and aid centers in the New York area bringing the magic of theater to those that cannot go to the theater itself. We are proud of our history, proud of the work we do, and happy to have a wonderful, extraordinary working relationship with the theatrical community. We're also grateful to all those who make what the wing does possible. 
We hope that you will enjoy and learn from today's seminar, which is the production seminar. And it is on The Lion King, that exciting new theater on 42nd Street that has really brought magic into the theater and into the audiences. I'd like to introduce to you today's panel. And from your, my left will be Chris Bono, Peter Schneider, Julie Tamor, Tom Schumacher, and Lebo M, and Rick Ellis. And to moderate this is our very, very own Ted Chapin, who is a member of the Board of Directors of the American Theatre Wing and President of the Rogers and Hammerstein Organization. And so, Ted, will you now begin with your side of the work that goes on into what's made The Lion King what it is today. I'll try, Isabel. Thank you for that. Um, on Broadway, there is absolutely nothing as exciting as the opening of a brand new hit American musical. And when a musical opens that has as much imagination and inventiveness as The Lion King does, this whole town cheers. And that was certainly the case this fall when The Lion King opened. Uh, adding to that the fact that it opened in a jewel box theater on 42nd Street that had been lovingly restored um, on a street that is similar, being lovingly restored, um, it's, it's really an extraordinary uh, achievement for everybody. Um, to begin here, uh, Musicals, as we all know, are is a collaborative art form. The musical is a collaborative art form, and as you can see, it takes a, a lot of people to put one together. Um, they're also usually, at least the good ones, are usually based on something. Um, and in this instance, it was based on an animated movie with all animals. And I thought that would be a good place to start. And I wanted to ask Peter Schneider, who is the president of Walt Disney Feature Animations and Theatrical... Get it right for me. You got it right. Okay, good it's enough. It's good enough. It's close anyway, enough. Anyway, in 1990, you hired Tom Schumacher to produce an animated movie you were, were working on called The King of the Jungle. Is the, that is true. Okay, <laughs> what is that, and does it bear any resemblance to what we know today as The Lion King? Well, you did say that all good things are based on something. And right. it's interesting that when we, we, we... Tom and I have made several movies together, being Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin and... Uh, Little Mermaid, and they were all based on classic stories. And Lion King was supposed to be the first one that we were going to do that was based on nothing, on a, basically an idea that we had set around talking about, about responsibility and what your responsibility to your mankind is. And it was supposed to be a small little movie in between the big movies, because things that are not based on some of the material would never be a big idea. And it was to fill time before, what was the movie that was going to come after it? No, no, what, what, no, um, Poca yeah, Pocahontas was coming Pocahontas after. So sort of, sort of filled time in between, and, and no one really thought very much of this idea. And we struggled very hard to try and create the movie, and for a long time it was called King of the Jungle. Well, King of the Beasts. King of the Beasts. Then we made Beauty and the Beast, so you couldn't have the word beast in the title. <laughs> the death, you know, was the title. <laughs> and then it became King of the Jungle, and the, the development of the movie was really a five to seven year process of trying this to This one was particularly long because of the miserable development that it had to go through. And that it wasn't really, we were struggling with the story, because when you don't have an underlying material to base something on, 
you keep on re-exploring, re-examining, and animation is very much like running a theater company. It's a very small repertory theater company. It has the same sort of development process. We do workshops, we do readings in different ways than the normal theater process. But it's, in some sense, akin to it. And for a long time, we had a very hard time finding the center and the soul of the whole piece. And we called it King of the Jungle, and it does bear a lot of resemblance to what we have today, because it is an additive process. And until we sort of went to Hans Zimmer, Actually, the thing that's important to know is that when the piece went into development as a movie, it was not a musical. And in fact, no one at the time thought that you could actually musicalize this material in any way, because the minute you said musical, they imagined lions in top hats. And, and lions singing. And, yeah, and, and how could you have a lion sing, and only people do musicals? So the whole idea of it even being a musical was something that, that no one believed in. And in fact, when we first approached Tim Rice on the first pass of the music, the music that, that, that the, the first sort of hit of the music was Tim Rice um, looking at it. We brought Elton John in. Elton wrote the songs, and we had five songs written, and we're still not convinced that the thing was viable actually as a musical, well, that it would we, even work at that level. We sought up for, in the first 20 minutes of it without music. It was sort of a National Geographic special, and we were all put to sleep by it. It was very uninteresting. Oh, National Geographic like is very important. A bad National Geographic special. <laughs> National Geographic is very careful, important. Careful. Very careful here. But the like you can't say enough about National Geographic. <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> National Geographic is very important. I hold it very, nothing yes. closer to my heart than National Geographic. Having said that, it came off as very educational, not very entertaining, and not very interesting. And then we said, well, let's try and make it a musical. Let's try and find some format, find something that is more interesting about it than the sort of National Geographic special. And we got those songs in. The, the songs, pretty much the ones that you would know, I Can't Wait to Be King, Can You Feel the Love Tonight, Circle, um, of Life. Circle of Life. And we didn't know, those were the sort of three that came in first, and we didn't know quite how they would fit into it, even though those were the songs written. <coughs> and it was then that we involved Hans Zimmer. Um, to, we said, you know, Hans, would you just score the movie, and would you help with the arrangements of the songs? And Hans found really what, what many of us feel is the key and the entire center of what the tone and the feel of the movie is and its spirit, which is Lebo M. So Hans, who had worked with Lebo on another score from a movie called Power of One, it's a lot of history, but it's important to sort of get how it got there, because it gets ignored all the time, <laughs> <laughs> to some irritation. Hans knew Lebo, brought Lebo in, and together they created that version of Circle of Life that people know uh, from the movie which begins with this, this soulful cry from Lebo. The only element of the movie that's been played in every language around the world is we add other voices to it. It's always Lebo starting the movie. And that's really the soul of what the movie became. And suddenly, it was like a door opened. And we figured out what the, the, the idiom was, in a sense, what the vocabulary could be. And it really came from that sort of, that was the big seminal moment. But it was really, it was, just to put it in context, it was two and a half years from the idea we said, let's make a movie set in Africa to the Hans Zimmer moment when it all came together. And then there were still another two and a half, three years of production to make yes. the movie. And that's, of course, not counting story agony, um, about story points changing, who was who. When the film began, for example, Rafiki was a cheetah, who was a, the, the advisor to Mufasa, because Mufasa was at war with the baboons. I mean, this was a, <laughs> a big, different thing from what you know. Even songs that are in the show now, like um, uh, uh, be Prepared was actually written for much earlier, in, uh, uh, later in the show, as a song called Thanks to Me, which was sung as sort of a victory song after killing Mufasa. So things shifted around. Can for I a back long up for, 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 for 
for a second. I, we boring you not to? No, no, no. You're not boring me in the slightest, okay, okay. but you're going very <laughs> fast. And, I, and because this is on production, one of the things which is obviously extraordinary about um, animated movies is you could do a piece of it, look at it, and decide it was a National Geographic special, junk it, or use elements of it and rethink. Just like a workshop. So, of a play. Right, right, right. We do, I do a uh, sort of a videotape on the first four minutes of the show. And over a period of time, you can see the progression. Because animation is done very slowly in black and white storyboards. <coughs> you make it move, you get to go back and change it. So it's, it is very iterative in terms of being able to do it over and over and over again, which is why I think the work uh, is great, because one can and has time to keep doing it and finding and exploring. And the first four minutes went through an incredible transformation from being uh, t told with dialogue, with, with Sarabi and Nala, uh, Sarabi and Mufasa welcoming the new cub, the baboon Rafiki coming, and it was very ponderous and very uninteresting. It was all talking. It was all talking. Oh, Rafiki, my oldest friend, come to bless my How son. good to see you! <laughs> oh, look, what do we have here? Right, it was really, that's, you all laugh at that, but that's exactly how the opening was. And it was finally, after all this process of going around and around and around, and the song finally coming in correctly, because Elton rewrote the song three times before we came to the uh, lasting version of Circle of Life. There's a previous version, which is not, it isn't very... Same lyric, different tune. Different tune. Then we have it done with Elton doing the tune the way it is and the lyrics. And it really wasn't until the whole combination of Hans Zimmer and Leboizing it and bringing some authenticity to it. You're a verb. Leboize. <laughs> Did it all come together? And then when you see it, you go, oh, I see all the elements from the two and a half years all capsulized and crystallized into a, uh, like a good stew. It's been reduced down to the essential elements where that moment of holding the baby up is really the mythical moment and it sets the movie off in the right direction and you get that sense of community and it's about a story about this cub and that I think is the fundamental nature of the piece and I think that's been held true. But it is discovery over and over, much like the, the, the process in animation at, which is for, 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 for our viewers probably very similar to what they expect for theater because it is about workshopping. You workshop it and you look at it. And it's like seeing something done in rehearsal clothes. It's seeing something in a rehearsal room with rehearsal furniture, rehearsal props. And that's the story real form. And then you keep, as Peter says, going over it and finding it. And then you get the, really you get the movie up and animated, like half animated, and now it's like going out of town because you've got it in costume. You've got it on its real set. You can actually evaluate it. And then we begin looking at it really up. And you say, oh, that song doesn't work. So Hakuna Matata is a replacement for a song that didn't work called Warthog Rhapsody. <coughs> that you move songs around, you cut things, you change things. That's going out of town. And the, one of the most seminal moments in... Did you want to say something, Ted? No, no, no. I, I'm, don't worry. I'm going I'm I'm to jump in here when I want. One of the seminal moments of the... I think one of the seminal moments of the movie and the play of course, is the Rafiki head bonking, in terms of when Rafiki <coughs> takes his club and hits him on the head and said, you know, the, the whole line. And you think, oh, how can you do this whole show and movie without that particular moment? That moment was added in the last four months <coughs> of this whole process. The movie was up, it was almost all in color, it was sort of finished, and it just wasn't resonating, it wasn't working. And we added this... We kept expanding Rafiki, thinking Rafiki would be the key to that. And this moment of the head bonking, which is now one of the funniest moments, it's sort of the emblematic moments of the whole show, was added at the very last minute. So it is the same process. It's like 
that yeah. allowed us to go through this whole thing of saying, where the movie is. Can yes, I ask a question? You sure. may. Go on. You may. Because this is about dollars and cents, is it cheaper than going out of town? Well, well, the animated process, of course, no. Making animated movies is a very expensive business. And we believe, fundamentally, which is uh, about being able to throw things out, having enough money in reserve that when you make a mistake, you can, without blinking, without real uh, soul-searching, throw it out and start the process again. Because without the ability to, quote-unquote, I suppose, waste money, which is not wasting money <coughs> in our process, but if you look at it, my God, they cut that whole, they spent all that money, and they just threw it out. Without that ability to do, I don't think you make great art. Now, there is an interesting balance to the, the, the money, to the, the, the on-the-road comparison. Oftentimes, being able to work in both businesses, for Peter and I, we have a perspective that's different from people who just work in one side or the other. The people who work in animation look at the theater and say, oh, gosh, how easy. You don't have to redraw all that. Just write a new song and have them go sing it on Thursday. Which those of us who work in the theater know that's complete agony. You have to do orchestrations. You have automation cues. You have lighting. They have to have a costume. What set are they singing it on? When are they going to rehearse it? You don't get any time to rehearse. So there's that dilemma. But the animation guy says, oh, just redraw it. The, um, or, or just you have to go do it. The theater people say, oh, you just draw it. That's simple. You just send it back in. You don't, none of this time, just send it off and have it redrawn. But the process of making final animation is so time consuming that when you're working up to a release date, you have to also figure out how to be efficient. Because you can't just keep throwing it out forever with your release date. So in terms of the early on choices, as Peter says, yes, we think we benefit from the ability to chuck things out. The flip side is we run out of time. So then you're making compromises. And the same kind of band-aids I mean, band and, and you know, bailing wire tricks that we do to keep a piece of theater alive happens in animation. So when we look at the movie The Lion King, we're slapping our foreheads the whole time, saying, because all the band-aids to us show. They stick out. One of the fun things about having Julie watch it the first time is she came to it with all these questions and all these, all these observations, mostly about things that like, are all band-aided and bailing wired. Because <laughs> she, she found every piece of chewing gum that held everything together. <laughs> and she said to me, you know, this story doesn't make any sense, really. I mean, I'm touched by the overall. But this Simba guy, what's his journey about? And so when Julie came to it, totally from the story side, saying, first, first view, what's wrong with this story? She discovered all that, even though there's something about the movie that keeps that going. Who had the final say on the movie? Who's the one who said at the, 11, at the 12th hour, that's the Lion King, the movie, it gets the clock. released? The clock. The clock and you guys it, and Michael Eisner? It's a complete collaborative process. And that the, the, if you look at the process, it is not a committee. But it's collaborative, and one works until the moments all work. And we have a fixed release date. We don't change our release dates. I can tell you the release dates for the next six movies now for the next six years. And that's the dates. And for us, we agree on an idea because we like ideas. We agree on what the idea will be. Pocahontas, A Lion King, uh, Mulan that's coming out this summer. We like the idea. And then we commit to making it without a script, without the music, without anything other than we like the idea, and five years later, here's our date, we're releasing it. And now we work as artists to try and get all the pieces to come together to hit that date. That's fascinating. So it's, it's not like in the, in the theater or in the other movie business where people write scripts, and you, can... and you judge them, and then you make a go and no-go decision. We make the go decision from the fundamental idea 
uh, I really like the idea. Okay, so now the Lion King movie is finished. It's finished. And a big hit. And a big, oh, a huge hit. A huge hit. A huge hit. I mean, just to put it in context. Inexplicably huge. I mean, just to put it in context, it was until last week the fifth highest grossing movie ever made. Titanic pushed it down one notch. But there are only six, five other movies that have, think about this, good or bad, that have made more money than The Lion King. So it's not just a good animated movie. It is, on the, the scale of movies, just a huge movie. I want to come in again. Who first said the words Julie Taymor? I was getting there, but... Well, that's a much more difficult question. Before we get there, though, I, I, I wanted okay. to know, you know, Beauty and the Beast hit on Broadway. Where did the idea... Who, okay. who came up with the absolutely preposterous idea of, of all the movies that you've done that this is the one that should be... Frank Rich. It? Frank Rich? Frank Rich. Frank Rich, in his review of... On Q WQXR, what is the classical radio mm -hmm. station? WQXR, in his review of the movie. The Lion King? No, Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast. Well, okay. he was asking about the I was asking about the Lion King, but that's oh. okay. Fill in. So, sorry, I'm sorry. For, who, Beauty and the Beast was open. By it was the open, time. it was running. Frank Rich's yeah. idea. Yeah. So, who had the Lion idea King. of the Lion King? Who thought. I, Ward I Morehouse. <laughs> Ward Morehouse. <laughs> <laughs> well, we read it there first. <laughs> we read it there first. <laughs> that you were doing it. Yes. Ward does have his finger on the pulse. He does have his finger on the pulse. But it was, it was an idea that was put forward of what could the next movie be that could be turned into an animated, uh, animated movie that could be turned into a uh, stage thing. And I think Michael Eisner sort of browbeat us into the idea that this could be the one to do. Even though it was your instinct, your, your initial instinct, this was maybe not a good idea? Or you'd work, you'd all, you three had worked together before. No, we, we hadn't worked together. That, it wasn't we that we together. thought that the, that the Lion King itself was wasn't a, a good idea. idea. Uh, th th there's a... There's a, f a really fascinating and, and deftly written <laughs> foreword to uh, Julie's book on, on The Lion King. That Who wrote I, that foreword? Per that. Perhaps I have written this foreword. <laughs> 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 it tells the story. They're available for sale in the lobby. Right. <laughs> and Julie will sign it for you. If right. you but uh, it, it wasn't that the, uh, the idea of doing The Lion King as a literal adaptation because what we, we, what we elected to do with Beauty and the Beast is pretty much give you on stage a smartly done, very handsome version of the animated movie. And so when you come to it, it follows much of the aesthetic of the animated movie, and, and it has, has the feeling of that. That's what its, its, its mandate was. What we could not imagine doing, Michael said to The Lion King, and since we were not running the theatrical division at the time, we could not understand how fulfilling what appeared to be the Disney mandate for what should be done in the theater how you could possibly do The Lion King and make it a credible experience that was emotional. Because the minute you locked the human spirit out of it, and you, and you did some kind of costume that would do that, or the minute you, you took... A literal translation. Yeah, a literal translation. It's impossible to figure out how you would do that, how you would get the sensitivity of those characters, those animal characters, through it, and make that either, um, and make it special. We couldn't figure out how to do that. And Michael kept pushing. He, he didn't have to worry about how it would be, got, be done. He just, just wanted, wanted that to happen. Done. That's what you were supposed to solve That's that our problem. job is to figure out how to do it. Right. And, you know, if one doesn't go into the theater with an ambition to do something uh, interesting or remarkable, it, we work in animation, and the artists there believe every time they go to make a movie, they'll make a movie better than Walt Disney ever could do it. Whether they do or not is really immaterial. They have the belief as an artist that they can find something special or interesting that has never been done before. And sometimes they succeed and sometimes they fail. But without the belief or the commitment to do something original <coughs> and unique, why bother starting down the path? Because then you've failed, in my opinion, already. So with The Lion King, we knew we had something special. The movie was so wonderful. How do you do anything better than the movie? 
And it's all about film. It's his big camera moves and herds of wildebeest and smiling lions and frightened animals. And, and, and the movie, if you, if, you are, if you actually look at the style of the movie, if you look at it as a designer, the movie's shifting its design point of view all the time. I mean, Scar couldn't even walk through the Circle of Life number and be a credible character. And then, in the Circle of Life number, we have meerkats popping up all over the place that look nothing like Timon, who's going to come in in the second act. It doesn't seem to even hold together visually. How do you take that? Because the, the animation allows you just to leap around. It's like National Geographic animals, then it becomes cartoon animals. It, it, it seemed so, sort of so impossible. So therefore, the trick was to go find people or somebody that could do the translation of this in a special way. And one of the people that uh, we had put on the list, and Tom had put her on the list and had known her work, was Julie. And we went down that path. Because we, you know, she came in and so you watched this movie, right? When you thought they're not, no, no, no. Um, well, Tom, I think it. Had, you hadn't seen anything live, but you'd seen mm. some video of a, of a piece that I had done many years ago called Liberty's Taken, which was a canvas that had about five or six hundred characters, and it had inanimate objects as well as human beings and animals, and you knew that I had created worlds before that were not the normal kind of worlds that you put into the theater, starting with the Haggadah at the public theater, uh, where you have the, the Ten Plagues and the Red Sea. So Juan Darien, my background in theater, I like epic theater. I like theater that normally you, isn't kitchen sink. I mean, and, and I've done a lot of Shakespeare, so the panorama is something that I'm not, in fact, I find to be quite a wonderful, challenging thing for the theater because it means you must use the poetry and artistry of the theater to get to the essence. So it's not about translating the literal landscape onto stage, but finding a theatrical way to get to the essence, which is what you have to do when you're moving from film to theater. And quite the contrary, when I saw the movie, I love the idea of the stampede. I mean, yes, how do you do that? But I love the idea of having to create multiple, multiple numbers, a lot of what are these gigantic swoops of the camera, um, the, the shots that come from above, the changing of perspective. I've done that in the theater, whether it's the smaller pieces or the large opera pieces that I've done outside of the United States, which most people do n are not aware of. This is a medium that I, that I would enjoy and would, would really take the challenge. The, I mean, you should, if you want me, I can just talk or yeah, you can ask particular questions. I mean, the, the, the areas were exactly what Tom started to say, which was, first of all, I work from the story. So it's not, how am I going to visualize it? First, what is the story? Do we think the story is complete? Does the story work for the theater? When we began, we didn't, there was not even the, the absolute that this was a legitimate Broadway musical. It could have been done in Radio City Music Hall. It could have been a kind of Cirque du Soleil. It could have been done in a planetarium. We knew that we would like it to be a Broadway musical, but what does that mean then? And you had a short movie, which had time for expanding, which was what, seven, how many, how many minutes? 81 minutes. 80-ish. So we knew if it was going to be a two-act two structure, we could then strengthen the places where the Band-Aids were, were bridging holes. Um, and those areas we all agreed on. The collaborative process, I started, I actually went off 
in one direction that that Tom just adored for a moment. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I had to, I was given tremendous freedom, which you know it's a collaborative process. But on the other hand, if you don't give the 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 main artist, which I think in this case is the director, to pull it together. Um, if you don't give a certain amount of, and this I think is a positive thing, I don't, I think that, that the two of them, rather than saying, these are your limitations, you have to stay here, here, go for it. What do you think's missing? What is even missing in the story? Now, I may have gone off further than they knew, but they didn't know it until I'd done it. Exactly. That's a key thing. And therefore, my problem was, I felt, what, what they were worried about is, how do you make this this animal kingdom human on the stage because you need to have that kind of you need to have that connection with the human being and I was worried myself in the beginning of how to do a whole show that was animals without going into a lot of detail I had created a second act where the animals morphed into half humans half animals <coughs> literally and I you know I developed this thing which I thought was very exciting. On um, <laughs> retrospect, I think it was good that we didn't do that. I think it would have been a four-hour musical and unnecessary, to tell you the truth. But what it did do was it, it then forced me to come up with the visual concept, which was the double event of the human and the animal. And I couldn't do it in the storytelling, and I was then told that the limitations are the same group of characters, the jungle and the savanna that, this, that we couldn't go to Las Vegas or wherever I took us. <laughs> Not quite, but we couldn't go to this other place. Then within those limitations, I tried to find other ways of doing it. Um, the collaborative thing, because I was interested, I don't know if I could work in their animated way. I mean, it's a very different, even though there are many things that are the same in the sense that we had the workshop process, also, people are always wondering, well, was it a committee? I mean, is it by committee? Is this a, such a collaborative that you don't get to pulley, uh, pull through? And it wasn't that style. What I really, why I think this is a wonderfully um, astute and terrifically creative production team is that they allowed me to pick my team. <coughs> now, Lebo was there before, and I just agreed with everybody that Lebo's presence should be much more profound and his, co and his participation as a composer should be much more involved. But Richard Hudson, um, Gordon Fagan, uh, sets, choreography, this was very supportive. It was not by committee. It wasn't them saying, we're going to have you work with this person, that person. It wasn't that kind of thing, which I think is very dangerous because I think that you have to let a vision come through and then you support the vision. That doesn't mean there aren't checkpoints along the way. And especially when I'm not sure it's working. And there were places where I'm going, I don't know, what do you think? And then I really respond to the creativity of the producerial input. That's very important to me. In your book, one of the most interesting things that you point out is the various workshops that this show went through. Um, I was fascinated by how certain characters started life as puppets or started yeah. life as masks or ma the fascinating mask that was in a backpack and stuff like that. How did, did you have to see those things fully realized before you made the decision that that wasn't the right way to do it? There's a certain amount of things that I've done enough of that I know will work and I know what the effect will be. But we, for, I'll just set that yeah. up a little bit. Um, I have to assume that you've seen it because it's a little tricky if I describe everything. But we did a workshop, our first workshop was a, a workshop that tested the book and the music, the majority of the music, and it was a sit-down like this, actor, singer, reading, which was 
absolutely fundamental to know whether this was musical was going to work because it's not about the visuals. It's about the book, the music, and the lyrics. And th if that heart is there and we are moved and entertained by that event, then the next step, which make it spectacular theater or tells the story in a whole other way, you know, where you have linear, you, you have a parallel story being told, and that some of this can't be told through language, but some of the storytelling is through imagery. Um, that, that came as well, and we knew that was going to happen, but we needed to know that our heart was there. And that, and that, and that reading, that, keep in mind, that includes new music, new yeah. text, and some big character changes, things that, like, like, like Rafiki, that hadn't been in the yeah, original having film Rafiki change gender. What part of, where were you when that took place? What this was after it? a year, after I'd worked on it for a year. Uh -huh. With um, the, uh, Irene Mecki and Roger Allers. I, uh, Roger had been one of the original directors on the movie, and Irene and Roger became the writers of the book with my input, not my, tech, not my literal, but with my, my freshness, being an outsider, coming in and pushing the story in ways, because it's very hard if you're very entrenched in something to be able to really look at it and be ruthless about it. So that was a very collaborative process. Working with Lebo and Elton and Tim and Mark Mancina on new musical pe places. We knew that, that Elton and Tim would write three new songs and I basically, as a director, I was given the freedom to, to actually say where the 15, you know, so you've got five, now we need about 15 or 16. Where will these go? What songs are, where do we need new music? Which is the music that is really the level world of music? Which is music that isn't about necessarily character study, but it is, it is larger about more spiritual or landscape or, you know, like the, the lioness chant, we call it the lioness chant and the grasslands that rise up. One these are not piece. Elton types right, of things. I mean, grass rising. To me, the genius Lord. musically of this piece is that Elton and Lebo, because I, I say they're the two major musical forces, are not the Lion King soul. What makes it so great is this incredible merging of two talents. Two talents from two disparate sources that when they're put together create its own next unique sound. It's really a fantastic collaboration in that sense. And one always, when we talk about collaboration, it's, that's not by committee. That is a joining of two talents to create a third, unique, singular sound and singular world. And that hopefully through my ability as a director and theirs as the producers say, it's not a hodgepodge, that we feel that we have completely blended this to, me, to make its own East-West, Africa, America collaboration. Because even as a designer and working with designers, I don't want it to look like I'm just smorgasbording, here's a little bit of Africa, here's a little bit of Asia, here's a little bit. It is filtered through us as artists and comes out to be something unique. Um, authenticity doesn't necessarily only mean that it's Africa transplanted. Authenticity means that it's true to whoever and whatever has created it. That it feels authentic doesn't only mean that it is pure from its origin, but it's pure from the origin of the artist. And you, you sense that and you feel it. And I know that I directed my designers, my co-designers, to work that way. That we weren't just making a copy of, you know, there are African fabrics that are reconsidered, reconfigured in the design. Those aren't pure, yet you feel it. You feel the source there. So um, that was something that was, you know, again, it was great working with these men because uh, they let me 
take it. And we had this process whereby if I didn't, if they didn't like what I did, mm -hmm. uh, which we, we didn't, or vice versa, or vice versa, we would split. And I wouldn't feel either through having been paid correctly that we had a nice contract. Well, I think it is in, to their enormous credit that they gave you not only this responsibility, but they took this chance with you in a sense of saying, see, take it. What's interesting is, is, in fact, a lot of people have said, what a risk, what a risk to call Julie. And my, I would say, what a risk not to call Julie. Because at least this way, you're putting yourself in the hands of a magic maker, of someone who can take this material. And I, I harp on this because it's important. It's about the, the attack on the material that, that, that was first. And then to put it, put it through this process, which, as Julie says, allowed everyone to examine it. So it wasn't some kind of foolhardy thing where we just said, run away. No. See on opening night, we were able. We had a process on everyone's part for what you were doing. Now let's say, let's hear the rest of this. These pieces that go together. Yeah. Let's we. Who are you again? Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm the other guy. Right. <laughs> You're level M. Uh, I'm level M. Uh, I guess my my whole approach to this and input is threefold, coming from the movie to the stage production. Uh, first, I think the most important part of it musically and creatively in terms of making music for the movie is that as you established, me and Hans had worked together. So we had a working relationship on a movie called Power of One. But even more important than that, we had certain goals and intentions when doing the soundtrack for Power of One, which was not to do something that has been done before as far as African music, um, African films are concerned in Hollywood. The idea initially that we actually talked about and planned was to do a soundtrack that is so huge uh, with African voices and uh, African percussions, but also marries into Eurocentric instrumentations and orchestrations and style of writing. So we intentionally set out to create a clash of music that at the end of the day becomes really unique and comes up being a unique sound. Uh, we did that with Power of One, and it ended there, but fortunately the opportunity to really realize it as an idea came with The Lion King. And how it came with The Lion King was uh, some three years after, I think, uh, maybe two, I don't remember, after I'd done Lion King with Hans, I had practice with a lot of other movies in between. But it was work, not really practice. But I did a few other movies, Congo, Outbreak, Made in America. But Hans called me into a studio one time. We'd done this routine. I would go to his studio, do some demos, leave, or you know, throw ideas on tape and just go. When he had time or I had time, I had a lot more time than he did. <laughs> uh, we'd literally go into the studio and <coughs> hang out, relax, and sometimes play around with ideas and throw them on debt and shelve them. So I thought this call was one of those calls where I just go out and hang out with Hans. But there was something different about this call. There was like seven or eight white guys with pens and pieces of paper. <laughs> <laughs> and that was not a regular hangout session. <laughs> so anyway, and I noticed El uh, Tim Rice was there. It was the very first session I was in. I, I knew the f name, but I couldn't figure out the name. The face, I couldn't figure out the name. And then. Uh, someone proceeded to explain to me 
what we're about to do, and they showed me a clip, which is the very first clip of, uh, uh, the from the beginning of the Lion King up to the end where the Lion King logo comes in. That's the first thing I saw. And I think it was in black and white then, if I'm not mistaken. <coughs> uh, but we talked about it a lot with Hans while they were doing the producer thing. But I had, had a, I had a concept immediately of what, from just that little bit, what it was. And basically we said, well, we can run tape. And me, Hans, and I bring, brought in about eight to seven singers from South Africa. And we created the first thing that you hear when the movie starts. And basically that's what I did. Did it as a demo, and I left for South Africa. I think seven or eight months later, Hans called me, or someone called me from Los Angeles. And that's when I got a script sent to me in, uh, it was not even a complete script. There was never a complete script for this thing. <laughs> but it, it was ideas that were ideas, enough ideas to make sense of the whole story. And I read that on my way to Los Angeles. I was really blown away by it and immediately, uh, I guess, became really personal with the story because it was very relevant to me as an artist, but also, more importantly to me, it was very relevant to me as a South African artist and in context with what was happening in South Africa at that time. Can I ask you a question? You're in the show now, aren't you? I was. I'm still in the production. When did that decision get made to have you, because you are the only creator who is, who was, at least when it opened in New York, in the show every night? I still don't know where that decision came from, but I'm a really grateful for it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to say that. But no, I, he's a great singer and his presence, and we wanted him in the, yeah. in the show. We never could find really yeah. a character, which is why he's not in it, because mm. it's really Laboche has to do other things. You know, yeah. he's more yeah. of a creator. So Creative. it's yeah. very important to us that we have uh, South African voices, yeah. not right. uh, people who are from South Africa who sing this way, who talk the language. How many languages are in this movie? Uh, three. There's Zulu, Sotho, Tosa, uh, and one some Swahili. So it's actually four plus English, and I don't know what Zazo speaks. <laughs> um, see, I, was, I was impressed when I saw the show and looked at I'm, I'm a program reader, and I looked at this and I thought, oh, this is fascinating that this yeah. guy is also in, in the show. And it, it kind yeah. of gave a... It, I think it really was a great idea to have me there initially. <laughs> <laughs> because... Well, I agree. It was, it was. I, I'm actually surprised because I've never really said that. Because I think... Uh, the, the, there was a challenge, which I'm the only person from the movie who had it, which was to put a choir, a complete choir with African Americans, or uh, Americans in general, because there are other Americans other than African Americans in the choir, in the same room with uh, singers from South Africa, physically from South Africa. And the idea, I mean, it's a long story how we got to that, both legal and political. But from the, from the movie to stage, my involvement, uh, I was fascinated by how I got involved in it. Because I initially just came to New York with Mark Manchina, who I uh, became very close to from the movie, to go meet a lady named Julie, Julie Tamer. And we went to Julie, we went to her house. It was a meeting that was supposed to be, I think, about 45 minutes to an hour, and then we go back to Los Angeles. We probably stayed at Julie's house the whole day. And we actually ended up working on the music for The Lion King the same day when we started. We were on a piano that evening yeah. at a house putting it together. But basically, uh, the most important thing to me was, and to Mark, and I believe to Julie, was that 
whatever elements we had musically in the movie, especially uh, in terms of the choral stuff. And in this case, Julie had opted to put the choral stuff more in the center than it was in the movie. In the movie, it was more background, yeah, uh, you know, right really underscore. In this case, we have a situation where you have characters that are actually singing and presenting the, mu the music in your face. And it was important to me that the authenticity in the way Julie explained it earlier, the word authenticity, uh, of what we did in the movie becomes real and true to the story as it was in the movie and as it's going to be in the stage show, which means bringing together these group of voices from Africa and from uh, America. Why I say that is because we had to end up doing that in the movie after going through some three to four weeks of recording the best singers who had done everything from Italian, German movie scores we record all of them in, in, America, in Los Angeles. And at the end of the day, when looking at the score and looking at the movie, it was good, but it was not great. And it was not really emotionally attached to the story. So at the end of the day, the decision was made to go to Africa, which fortunately Disney supported without questioning, yeah. uh, to go to Africa. And we recorded some 120 voices and incorporated those with voices in Los Angeles and went to London and recorded those. So it became a really really authentic marriage of these different cultures and styles of singing. But at the center of it was the South African style and everything else was background. So that was necessary yeah. for stage. And that, I think, was the other very important element of Let it. Let me add to it, just because we're on the music now. Um, the thing about the, the, when you're trying to create a film into theater is obviously the liveness of it. So the reason that you would want the chorus to be at the forefront is because what is the point of having these anonymous voices? Were they in the pit backstage? So they became the central character. There are principal characters, but I think we all consider that the chorus in The Lion King, dancers and singers, is a principal character. They are all the animals, they are the landscape, and they come alive. And the thing about this clash that Levo is talking about, musically, Mark Mancina, who's, cons what is he technically called, the producer of the music? Producer for Producer stage. for the stage music. The stage, yeah, yeah. yeah so and, and one of the composers, one of the composers as well, who worked with, with Lebo in particular. This was another thing that was very important, which was we have the orchestra pit, but we wanted to use the boxes in the theater for the, for the um, percussionists. So that you, this is a fairly unique sound that you're getting in The Lion King, which is this, this the, uh, the ethnic quota, whatever that means, we're all ethnic of some kind, but those instruments that come from um, Af African instruments and pr probably Asian instruments as well, I wanted the, the audience to see them being played as I wanted them to see the, the actors and the chorus singing it's, and to be there walking down the aisles. Anything that we could do to make it live and not make it a, an imitation of a film but to do what theater can do was, was extremely important. I think people, again, take for granted the through music of this piece. That it's not, you know, you, you, you have in traditional musicals the, the dialogue and no underscoring, and then you have a song come up with a little bit of an intro. This is so through composed that it almost disappears for people. Mark Mantina's job was enormous. It was huge. So when we <coughs> sat down, the three of us, uh, Lebo, Mark, and myself, and really, um, and, and you know, worked with Tim and Elton as well, but they were across the sea, so there was this back and forth. But to really, to, to organize it musically, it was with Lebo and Mark. And to really figure out how to go from one scene to another, and what are the transitions, and Lebo was a huge part of that. 
so because the chorus is used for a lot of as as scenes change it is absolutely through composed and it's an incredible score that way because there's so much action how many musicals have uh you know these kinds of of uh cataclysmic events going on <laughs> i think even more importantly uh, after sitting with Julie, I think the first two days, I think we ended up staying in New York for a week or so. <laughs> uh, but one of the most important things that we realized, me and Mark, is that uh, this is going to be something that is very unique. Even though we absolutely have no background in theater, uh, just by look, I mean, Julie had all kinds of pieces of papers in her house, and this is going to be scarred. Okay, okay, so where does the music fit in here? <laughs> so we had to find ourselves in her in her space and then incorporate everything so we set out to see broadway shows while we're in new york and i think after the first one uh, during intermission we looked at each other and said we gotta go no more broadway shows <laughs> because what we learned from that immediately is that one we're gonna have probably the most unusual orchestra setting in the history of broadway and we ended up with one exactly like that two uh, the music we're going to do or be involved with, the approach is going to be very different from what is the norm on Broadway. We're going to need a very unique conductor who is also a creative person because everyone in this whole company of people is creative, including the producers. There's one of those situations where I've been involved with where you have producers that are very creative people, which was a plus in this case. So from then on, we set out not to see any more Broadway shows because we don't want to be influenced by the normal thing and we knew we were coming from a different background. Second, it was important I guess to us because we did not have theatrical experience. I had with Sarafina, I, I did the national tour with Sarafina but not as a creative person, as a cast member. So those are very important elements for us creatively because from then on we knew we had to do everything different from what is done on Broadway. I was involved in casting singers. I was involved in helping to cast to get the orchestra together. We interviewed probably the best conductors and ended up with what, who we thought and fortunately were lucky to get him. Joe Church, who was really the best person we talked to. We knew that two minutes after we walk in, whereas other people would spend half an hour interviewing. So we needed a personality, a creative conductor, and a musician type of conductor, not a normal Broadway conductor with a bow tie. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if such a thing, if such yeah, a thing, really, they don't such a thing even exists anymore. Yeah. Well, we saw one. <laughs> yes, right. I don't know which show. Which is cool, but you saw the one. Right? Yeah, yeah. The it's good, but it, it it gave us a point of reference to start from and a direction not to take to but make as this move unique. From now, from music to money, <laughs> where do they come in? Money. Money. Well, you want to talk about money? Money. Money. money well, clearly, what? clearly the other. If you want to move Press to that. agent, advertising, company manager, general manager. Well, clearly, where do they all fall in place now? Well, with anything, one first has to create the art and have something great, and right. then the second challenge, of course, is to place it in the marketplace in an intelligent manner that people will actually want to come see it. Mm -hmm. And to that, and we turn to two companies. One was uh, Serena Coin, which. Uh, Rick Ellis is our creative director on and has been what great. What does he do? He what thinks... Do you do personally? Yeah, what do you do? What do you, what do, you do, what Rick? Do, Rick? And Chris Bono. What do you do, Rick? Chris Bono is our press agent. So there's two aspects of the selling of the movie. One is the advertising and the paid stuff movie. and the stuff that's play. It's <laughs> musical. I'm well, sorry. And the other one is the press. So 
Well, Chris should go first because Chris was there first. Well, let me just back up a little bit because what, what, what happened is we had to announce the project after Beauty and the Beast, and that was a hit, and Tony Award and all that stuff. But there was this sort of skepticism about Disney. You know, you can't say Disney without people doing a couple of things, either rolling their eyes or, you know, running for the theme park, which is a good thing. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and when these guys came in, which was a whole new regime, which is great, and, you know, you, the thing you need to know about these guys is they're, not only are they very smart and they're fun to work with, but they're from the theater. They started in the theater, nonprofit theater. And they bring um, a lot of uh, enthusiasm about the theater, and they bring enormous resources. So when we we were getting ready to announce the next project, and there was all this talk about what it would be. And Ward Morehouse, our friend at the New York Post, announced that it was going to be The Lion King. And I have to admit, I was in the skepticism camp, because I thought, how are we going to do that? And I'm sure the same thing everybody thought. Mine was a different one. Is how are we going to be taken seriously? And when we announced it, or when people started sneaking it, they did the thing we hated, which is they ran stills of the movie, you know, the Mufasa big old lion thing. And we thought, oh, no, people are going to think this is foam head time. It's going to look like the theme park. And when Julie and came nothing on... Nothing is wrong with the theme nothing park. Nothing wrong with the theme park. I, I've, I've got <laughs> in trouble for that before. Not for Mr. Ice is going to send you a little note. Yeah, he will. <laughs> okay? I can assure you. He's had one. You'll He's get the note. He's had one. But so when, when they, they mentioned Julie Taymor, um, I went over to see Juan Darian and thought, well, yeah, they were, this is a great decision. And what was, uh, we were able to do was announce this project along with Julie. And the press, which you know, we have to remember the press all the time, they all sat back and said, well, that's a risk. That's going to be an interesting choice. And then they let us go, go away for a while. We announced <laughs> it. We left it alone. Julie went off and did her work. And we decided, and was the first, kind of the first thing we decided was, don't send out pictures of what we're going to try to do. Don't try to describe it. And it's the thing that, that, that Peter kind of came up with during, uh, before we got to Minneapolis is people can't write about it until they've come to see us. And it was the best rule that I had to, and it's actually informed the way I do my business now, which is do the work before you come and see it. Because you can't, if you say to somebody, we're going to do the Lion King on stage, everyone has their own idea of what it's going to look like. But until you go to the New Amsterdam, you, you're not prepared for what you're going to see. And it was, it was the smartest thing, I think, that on, on our side we got to do, which is let the work speak for itself, uh, introduce Julie to the public, let Peter and Tom get out to meet the, the folks in the community, understand that they are part of the theater. They weren't coming in to try to take over the theater. They just, they're happy to be here. We, also, we didn't do much in Minneapolis, no. in terms of, other than work on the show. Right. The other big, other big thing was we went to Minneapolis out of town tryout, which I think is very important when you develop new shows. And that the, the, the one comment we got over and over again in Minneapolis is, A, you're not advertising, and B, there's not much hype. And we kept saying, but we don't care to spend the money on the advertising because it's nice that people come see it, but we're not there to actually have full houses. Or we're not there to make money. We're there to look at the work on stage, and it's nice to have an audience, in, an audience to respond, which we did have. Which we always had an audience. We had an audience. It just, we weren't overspending or trying to spend so much time or attention on gathering an audience because it was a eight-week run, eight mm -hmm. weeks, mm -hmm. and we'll be gone in eight weeks. And what we really <coughs> were trying to do was get the show right, focus our energy on the show, and come to New York with right. it. So, we, so we, it, was a, it was an interesting strategy, and it was really Rick and Nancy Coyne at Serena Coyne that then came and tried to figure out how to advertise that and place that in amongst a very so competitive... So you came first, and then came Nancy and Rick. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Uh, what I, I had very much the same reaction, having seen Beauty and the Beast, having understood what I thought was as Tom described it, the Disney mandate for the theater. And so when word got out that Julie Taymor was going to be connected with The Lion King, I, my reaction, as a, not just as a, 
a theater-friendly human <laughs> being, but as a consumer was, no, no, this is like a misprint. I mean, because I'd been seeing, I'd, I'd been to Haggadah, and I'd been to Greenbird, and I'd been to Wanderian, and I thought, this, they, would never, they would never risk that, because it's risky. And risk, to me, as a human being, is exciting. And I thought, wow, this is sort of exciting. And as a consumer, I'm uh, interested in things that are exciting. As an advertiser, I like to exploit that excitement that I feel as a consumer. And, uh, and I thought, oh, this, is, I, this could be kind of neat. Now, Nancy Coyne, my mentor and, and boss and uh, who runs the agency, uh, was not familiar with, uh, with Julie's work. So I said, go out to Minneapolis and see this and come back and let's talk about whether this is something that we really want to go after. And she came back with this big smile on her face and she said, you know, this is very, very, very different from Beauty and the Beast. Um, and and there is a, a great challenge here. As, as advertisers who've been doing this for a long time, Nancy for 25 years and me for 17 years, uh, uh, what, what excites us after all these years is a new challenge. And this actually felt like a new challenge, which was uh, we got to uh, take these two men who are at the top of their form, at the peak of their uh, careers, uh, and frighten them a little bit. <laughs> we asked them over. This is the top? We are right. the top? <laughs> <laughs> this is as good as it gets. I keep God. telling you. This is downhill from here. This is as good as it gets. In really? 10 years, when yeah. you sit yeah. watching you. this video, you <laughs> say, he was right. That was as good as it got. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, there was, there was, I got to go now. <laughs> we had this opportunity to put a scare into them. So we invited them over, never having met them before, and, and we said, listen, you know, there's, there's something that you're not doing that you ought to do. And um, uh, that was, uh, uh, we, we feel that you are uh, going at this uh, and you're missing a couple of steps in terms of, um, in terms of the life of this show called The Lion King. You know, ordinarily... Audience-wise. Audience-wise. About in, getting in, to an audience. In, in most cases, you know, our concern is how are we going to run for a year? Or how are we going to run for two years? How are we going to get through next September, October when there's the dip for the fall? How are we going to get through next January and February when everyone's afraid to buy tickets in advance because maybe it's going to be snowing. Suddenly, we were confronted with something that really had the opportunity to run a long time. I mean, a long time, because people 20 years from now ought to be able to see what The Lion King is as much as people this weekend ought to be able to see it. 20. And, 20 yeah, years. 20 years. I mean, that's, I, you know, that's, that's, that's a reasonable goal. I mean, shows <laughs> So, so, you know, we thought, listen, in order for that to happen, in order to maximize the longevity of this product, how are we going to do it? Here's what you guys may not understand, um, and, uh, or here's what you may not have thought of, and that is that the evolution of an audience has to happen in a certain sequence, and that if you go out of sequence, you can't go back and pick up the first audience. And the, in order for a show to run as long as The Lion King deserves to run, I mean, you see, you just listening to these people talk, it's such, a, it's such a privilege to be in an environment where people talk in this creative way, talk about authenticity, and sort of like chew words around in a way that, you know, it's impossible to be cynical around people like this. And so here we oh, are. Try, these, try. These, try. These terrible, we can be cynical. We can be very cynical. Rick, <laughs> he took a happy pill today. Yeah. <laughs> we, said, we said, but listen, you know, here's the thing. You, gotta, you, can't, you can't go for the family tourist audience right off the bat, because if you do that, you can never go back and get the avid theater goers who will add years of life to the show. You can't, you can't go back and get them if you've missed them the first time around. 
So what you have to do is forget that you're Disney for a while. My little mantra became every decision that I would pitch to these guys, I would think, it's not Disney presents The Lion King, it's the Royal Shakespeare Company presents The Lion King. If it were that, what would we be doing? How would we be presenting ourselves? And to whom would we, present, uh, would we be presenting ourselves? And in what form would we be presenting ourselves? What would we tell them? What would we not tell them? What would we show? What would we never show? And that became sort of our strategy that we pitched to these guys. And fortunately for us, they called us the next day and said, let's go out for dinner and talk about, you know, talk about how, how we would do this. And what, what happened that was wonderful was that everything we proposed, we turned out not to be able to do because the show was such an enormous commercial success that, <laughs> that it changed everything. And therefore, our only job was to take the lack of availability of tickets, <laughs> right? the lack of availability of tickets, and try to be as helpful as possible in the dispensing of, of, of tickets at, at a later date to make it as easy and courteous and speedy as possible uh, to really actually sort of be public service oriented well, in our I, advertising. I think you're, you're being very modest because... How do you well, do that? Well, you, you take ads that don't look like the show's taking them. You take ads that, for example, uh, the day after the show opened, we were very concerned about how we would accommodate the demand. I mean, imagine being in a business that's so stupid that you have to actually turn away more people than you can accommodate. And there's no guarantee that they're going to come back. And, and buy your product some other time. They may just go across the street. They may, they may decide to go out to dinner and not go to the theater at all. So I mean, imagine being told, well, we can only service this many customers during a 24-hour period. We can't accommodate <coughs> more demand than this much. What do we do? Well, we decided we would try to open twice as many windows at the box office. We decided we would bring a van of, of telephone operators outside the theater to accommodate the overflow. We would amuse and entertain and, and give bonuses to people who would be willing to wait online for hours and hours and hours. We would, we, we, and, and to answer your question, we took an ad that for the first time listed the locations of Ticketmaster outlets. Simple thing, but it had never been done because everyone just figured, well, you know, Ticketmaster outlets, it's just a couple of dollars a day. Why bother? We took a big ad that actually listed all the Ticketmaster locations for the outlets in the, in the uh, in New York City, greater metropolitan area. So knowing that the box office could not accommodate more than a certain number of people during their hours, we wanted to be able to accommodate many more people than that. So we actually drove business in other directions. Very, very simply, it was not, this was not a big schmaltzy ad in color or anything. We just said, in order to make your ticket purchase as easy as possible, assuming that people are already interested in buying, that we didn't need to do any selling, we just needed to actually make them available, you might want to save some time by going to the drugstore on the corner and buy your tickets there, as opposed to coming to 42nd Street, waiting online for eight hours, and then perhaps being, uh, you know, disappointed. Well, how many seats do you have? How large a house is it? 1800 1801, roughly. Uh -huh. 18, what's 18, what's 18, your ticket price? Our top ticket price is $75. It goes down right. to 25 so, And what do you go down to? 25 Do you have any uh, family or a senior citizen or a student? No, we don't. You don't? We have. There is, the, I mean, to s no, not per se, but the fact that there is a price scale at the New Amsterdam Theater is not as common as, as, as may be understood. There are many theaters on Broadway where the price for the first row of the orchestra is the same price as the last row in the mezzanine. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the New Amsterdam Theater has a price scale. So if you have some money to spend, but not necessarily $75, it is still possible for you to sit in the theater and see the show. And I got to tell you that it's also one of, those one of those rare occasions where if you sit upstairs in what are known as the seats that aren't so great, uh, you actually see 
the show and experience the show in a profound way in the same way you do as if you're in 10th row center. And that, God, we all know, is not necessarily the case uh, uh, across the board. The theater design. The Somebody walked upstairs in this theater and looked at it before the audience came in, right. probably three or four or five times, and probably brought some other people with her and, and moved over there and moved over there and moved but over there. That also so has to do with the way that the show itself is created. Mm -hmm. I mean, just from a, from a design point of view and certainly from Julie's direction staging, that she's created this event that what, and, and you do experience it very differently throughout the theater, and Garth's choreography is that way. And it's much like if you're a dance fan, how you enjoy moving around the theater, because I'd always rather watch dance from the mezzanine than I would from the orchestra section. It's my own choice to, you know, to see the patterning. That what you see in the show changes and shifts within the, within the theater. It also is, uh, if you haven't been to the New Amsterdam Theater, it is one of the old theaters of Broadway. It's been restored, uh, and it's a beautiful, intimate space to be in. I think it has a great character and great soul. And I think it adds to the experience. The whole blending of the theater and the theater piece <coughs> is all one. It's not as it's, you're not walking into one of the new large commercial theaters. It is a theater was built in 1924, 1970, 1903, 1903, 1903. Yeah. and restored. And it's it's a wonderful experience just to come to the theater. Right. When in the process did the theater and the show? Come together. I mean, did, did did Disney make the commitment on the New Amsterdam before The Lion King became a? Yeah. Not that much. It was no, we, 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 were, we were still deciding what was going to go in it. Mm -hmm. But it was right after Beauty and the Beast, we decided to start renovating the theater and decided to do an, a historical restoration under the direction of Hugh Hardy and commit to that. And very shortly thereafter, we knew that Lion King was going to go into it. And we had the, it's a luxury as a producer to, to go out of town and to know what your theater is and to know what's waiting for you when you actually when you want it when you want it. you need it Tom said a second ago the word event which you, you kind of can't take lightly on this show I mean what happened in Minneapolis is that we kind of all over beer at night realized that we had an event I mean the some journalists from New York were coming in to see it and people were reporting back just ecstatic things and look, as my my job is to court the press and to take a lot of pictures of the show and <coughs> a lot of video and we were in a position of actually sitting around rooms going nope we're not gonna use that we're not gonna use that and I was you know getting horrified I thought I'm not gonna be able to do my job well I then, then Peter said to me you know what we'll just show them a little bit what if we say no what if we say we're not gonna use that picture and it wasn't arrogant it was just protecting the integrity of the show, that showing somebody with a big old thing on their head or a, or a person dressed as a blade of grass, which is beautiful <laughs> in the show, but out of context, you go, what is that? And we didn't want to ruin what was we kind of sort of feeling was going to be an event by having people think, I've already seen it. So we wanted the element of surprise, and the only way to do that, and Rick and Nancy were great about that, they came in and said, Chris, no. No, Peter's right. Don't show it. Don't show it. So we have maybe three pictures and two minutes of it's video. It's hard to be that brave. You know, you want but we to, had to be it's hard to walk away from the things that you ordinarily would kill to get. Right. That kind of press attention, you know, where everybody is calling, where we have all these opportunities, but you have to say, you know what, in terms of the long term, to stay on strategy is the, you know, the marketing term. You say on strategy is to say, <coughs> keep the long run in mind. And everything was done in terms of the long run here. And so that it was playing the cards very close to the table, not to be obnoxious about it, but to be theatrical right. about it. This is a piece of theater that exists in the theater, on the stage, and in the environment of the theater. And it, it is uh, an intense enough uh, experience to maintain the integrity well, of Well, you know, people call every day, they say, well, uh, we want you to come out to, uh, uh, you know, to Bryant Park, and we want you to bring some of the animals with you. And we're like, no, 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 wait. 
They're actors. They're actors playing a character. They just happen to be an animal. So we can't, no, no, we're not, and you know, the Today Show, yes, but we can't come out and perform with Matt and Katie because it just doesn't work that way. And you have to every day say no. And it's, it's hard when you're in my job to say no because I hate you, the word no. Where do you go from here? Look, you talked about marketing. You just threw that word away. Are you doing a lot of marketing? Are you doing? Well, we have the uh, very interesting position where we have, uh, we're now sitting here in April, and we're basically sold out through the end of the year. That it's very hard to get a ticket. You can get tickets. There are tickets available every day. Uh, there are returns and cancellations and standing room. But to get tickets, you know, four great ones together, you're going out at least nine months, maybe a year. And therefore, the challenge, I think, the marketing challenge, is how to convince people to buy the tickets now for future. So that's the enigma, because you want to maintain a presence, because the sh you need to be alive. And yet, the way most people have created a presence is by advertising to sell more tickets, which we don't right now have a lot of. So then what are you doing from a press and a marketing position to keep the show alive, to keep it in the consciousness? Clearly, every night when there's a performance, all those people burst out of the theater and they're talking about it. And they're telling people about it. And, they're, and th that's a thing. And we, you know, there are appearances this week. Um, uh, this is the week of the annual um, rainforest benefit that uh, Sting and Trudy Styler do. So the, the company was on at Lebo Performed, and we were at that. So y there are certain things you can do like that to keep the show alive, but it's not about advertising because you're, then you're just throwing because money. advertising would create a negative impression right. with the audience, which is, why are, they, why are they telling me to go to see the show when I can't go to see the show? And so you get this irritation factor, and we don't want to irritate anybody. We just any more like than we do in general. <laughs> you know, this is also I mean, a phenomenon, though. We people don't buy. There hasn't been this kind of demand for a Broadway show, maybe ever. And people don't know to buy a year in advance because they don't think you're going to be there. Well, I don't. I don't think anybody's come from buying a year in advance on things. No. Where am I going to be on April thirteenth, nineteen ninety-nine? Well, actually, you and I know we work in animation. I, know, I appreciate that. But so we're going to be twenty years from now on that twenty-year run that he was talking about. Well, I think you know the, his, the history of the the technology of Broadway, i.e., the computer, the phone systems, the ability to uh, use credit cards have fundamentally changed the way Broadway has, has sold tickets. And that's a recent phenomenon. It used to be you could only put 12 weeks of tickets on sale. Because you could only rack them. Because you only could rack 12 weeks of tickets at a time, and you'd do that and be all mail order. Now it's all about telephones and credit cards and computers. And as we get more sophisticated online, one of the other big strategies we had was online, buying tickets online. We sold so many tickets online that the idea of the, the longevity of shows really takes advantage of new marketing. Lion King, is, Lion King is, is actually breaking new ground aside from what's happening inside the theater. Because, as Chris said, this is the, the, the demand here is extraordinary enough so that things are being done that have never been done before. So we're really actually striking out into virgin territory here. We're not quite sure if we're doing the right thing, but we're trying lots of things to see. And a lot of shows that are, have yet to be done are going to benefit from what the Lion King experience is here, shows that are fortunate to be uh, you know, successful uh, in this way. What do you think, what's the biggest contribution do you think Lion King has made to the theater? To the theater, not to technology. Are you asking me? I'll go. No, 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 I want Rick to answer it. You should answer that question, Ted. Rick's going to answer it. To me, it seems to me that, that, uh, that these days, I like uh, that everyone uh, that. these days adults have a suspicion about themselves and about their children uh, that is uh, that the uh, 
of the watching of television, the playing of video games, and the going to films uh, has uh, eliminated something that is essential to our nature as human beings, which is the ability to imagine. And that uh, exercising that muscle, the muscle of imagination, is as vital as any muscle that you would exercise in a gym. And uh, it's just that you go to the theater to exercise it. Um, uh, Nancy Coyne is fond of saying that, uh, that there's never been a kid who's gone to see a, a, a show in a theater that has shown up at school the next day carrying a gun. And, and, uh, and I think that's it's probably true, although we, we have no way of knowing, but, but I know that as a, as a human being who experienced <coughs> The Lion King, uh, it, it, uh, I, was, I was very, very um, happy to have the opportunity to flex that muscle of imagination and to be um, in the presence of of uh, creative people who had done it, who had done that flexing uh, before me, for me to behold in such a profound way, in a way that sort of <coughs> turns the theater into almost kind of a ritual experience, which is what the theater is. <coughs> it's not that Julie's invented new things; she's taken old forms and put them on stage. And in hundreds of years from now, these forms will still be used in the theater. The theater is what survives of our of our history as human beings. It's the oldest documentaries we have are the plays from the ancients, you know, so I, it, it, I, it made me feel part of a chain. I think, I think I if think I may answer that also for me, what Lion King has brought on Broadway or theater as an outsider or now formerly an outsider because now I'm, <laughs> I'm here, I think it has brought the universality of art and theater to Broadway which uh, I'm made to understand and through some little experience here that it has really been a very close community with very limited access for uh, you know, outside theatrical productions. I think that's important because what Lion King represents as a story, it's a very universal story, even though it's centered around Africa. So for me, it brings two elements. The fact that Africa, you can bring a project from Africa or about Africa and make the biggest uh, you know, story or headlines in New York, which is pretty much in the American context unthinkable because Africa is a dark continent. Lion King, or was, or in other people's perspective, Lion King did that in movie theaters, and it did that on Broadway too, but I think creatively uh, it's brought an important element of theater, and that is um, the world has become so small, and New York is truly a, a melting pot for people from other uh, various cultures in the world and that there's a new element of appreciation for different cultures. I, I think it, it's terribly exciting what you've done. I have to, you know that I feel that way and I go on record that. But I have to ask, uh, why does the ticket price have to be so high? I, I know everything that's there, but one of the things that we keep hearing all the time from people is why I love the theater, I want to go to the theater, but I no longer can afford to go to the theater, or I can't take my family to the theater because it is so important. We need the theater for the family, as much as you're talking about that 20-year run, for the family to be able to go ahead and keep going to the theater and each child to take their child to the theater and be able to afford it. Isn't there a way of having tickets less expensive, more affordable, more available somehow. When you have an enormous hit, can you then take some of it apart and say, let's do this for bringing in people to the theater? That's a very good question. Um, I, again, I want to stress that 
there's a great range of ticket prices. So I think $25 is a terrific bargain to going to the theater today. Not enough people know that there's a $25 ticket. Well, That's I, think, only I, the I think the reverse of that is that most people want the best tickets in the seats. That is the interesting thing. And if you look at opera today, opera is $200. So the question is, is the pricing scale correct? Should we be charging $150 for those five, five rows of the best seats and scale down from mm -hmm. them? And that changing the economic model, which is, that people will pay $150 for those five rows of seats and they can afford and that to. there are always people that would we'll pay, pay for that. Mm -hmm. And then change the whole pricing. And I always thought that there's an inverse thing. ratio between the availability of tickets and the price of tickets because you, you, you can't find an expensive ticket. The only tickets that you can find are the less expensive tickets in the theater. So even between, when we say we're virtually sold out, the ones that are available are the seats at the lower ticket prices. Mm -hmm. So the question really is, can we, in, on Broadway Day, relook at the economic models and yet you get such tremendous Disc, uh, press about the I think rent just raised the, raised the price by five dollars, and they were in an effort to lower the, the other prices. Price. But they were crucified for that, and that I think the the dilemma today is the costs keep rising. The unions. Well, what what I find shocking is that you can go to a play that's got four characters or three characters and no set changes, and it's almost the same price. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it seems to me that you know you do have to scale. It costs a lot to run the Lion King. There's a lot of people, there's 100 people backstage. So, it, you know, what I find absurd is you go to art or you go to a one-man show or something, you're up there paying $50 for a ticket price. At the same time, we're doing, uh, we're doing a couple outreach things. On July 4th, we've uh, donated the house to various people and trying to find ways to do audience development, because I think it's very important. I think yeah, bringing children kids. into the theater, which I think is fundamental about the, the next children generation. Children and people who can't afford to pay. Mm -hmm. It's fundamentally important if we want the next generation of artists to develop and to appreciate the theater. I, I wanted to make an observation, half a asking the, uh, answering th that question. From my standpoint, when this show opened here, the first thing that I heard was the inside theater crowd, who, as all of you know, are, are not necessarily the most charitable people. As you talk about, it's a closed group. They're not the most charitable group. They were blown away by what the, the Lion King was because I think it tapped something in them that they had to be reminded is what the theater was all about. Right. And uh, I remember one in particular person said to me, put your Rodgers and Hammerstein hat away, go, become four years old, just wallow in the whole thing. The other thing that I find it, 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 extraordinary is the, the collaboration of the Disney name, the people who actually are Disney theatrical these days, and an American talent that I believe has been supported by the National Endowment for many, many years is a, is a connection that I think people haven't made. And I think it's a rather important connection to make because the National Endowment supported this woman's work for years. And everybody sort of felt, well, but then isn't it sort of you take care of yourself and you'll find someone to pay for it? In a funny way, yes and no, because they, you know, they allowed your talent to grow and expand. And, and we all reap the... The, the Without the National Endowment and the not-for-profit theater movement, Tom and I wouldn't be here today. Right. We spent 15 years of my life in that world, raising money and working, for the working at theaters that use endowment money to create art. And I think it is a crime in this city, in this country, that the arts are not taken as seriously as they should be, that our funding is challenged, and that we are not reinvesting back in the communities in terms of art, whether it be theater, dance, music, playwriting, poetry. It is fundamentally important in this country, and I, I feel that the arts policy has gotten lost someplace in the agenda for our governments. What do you feel about that? Well, I feel uh, there would be no Lion King without the National Endowment for the Arts because it's okay for Disney to take a chance with an artist like me when it's the Lion King.
I'm not sure that they would have done it with my own work. I know they wouldn't have. And that's obvious. And they would say the same thing, that they put something that was very safe, very commercial, that already had an audience together with an artist. You have to go and look at Theater for a New Audience, Music Theater Group, La Mama, the public, the, any place else that I worked which did projects like Juan Darien or Titus Andronicus, which, or the Green Bird or anything that doesn't jump out and reek of safe right off the bat is where you hone your work as an artist. If I hadn't had the kind of fellowship support or whatever to develop these various ways of thinking about theater and creating, how would I have all the skills necessary to do something to give these guys the confidence to, to put the money behind and let me do it? I feel like you, 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 you can't cut that place out because there's got to be people who are younger than I am who need to have that time to really experiment and to really play and find their voice as artists, and it isn't going to be in the large commercial arena. They're not going to get there yet. It's too, too risky. That's risky. You need to, he had seen, they'd seen enough else, other things, to say, okay, she hasn't done this, but look what she's done. Now, if we put these two together, that's interesting. But it's not going to be, I, I was interesting before I did anything, probably, but <laughs> I wouldn't have had all the Were you now, Missy? Were you, Missy? Somewhere, there's something there. I can look back and look at my first work, but literally, I wouldn't have had the I wouldn't have had the experience. It's purely about also, it's 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 having the experience and having also the variety, which I'm so concerned about. I mean, it's it, you you want Broadway to have Rodgers and Hammerstein, and you want Broadway to have Sarafina or to have The Lion King. You want that world, and you've got to be able to keep these all these uh, theaters alive, and and need to give people support to do that. So, uh, yeah, it's devastating that, that people would think you could do without the National Endowment and let the big companies support because they're not going to do that. It's not going to happen because it needs to be risk-free, totally not-for-profit in order to have that experimentation happen. I'm, on that note, I'm going to have to... I'll, I'll applaud you on that, too. to draw this to a close and I think that bringing Lion King to 42nd Street has been one of the most exciting experiences that we can possibly have on Broadway and we at the Broadway uh, industry, the Broadway family, salute to Disney for doing it and doing all the things that you have done in New York and on Broadway. And this is our seminar on the production, and it's the very talented, knowledgeable people that are behind the production, The Lion King. And I can't thank them enough for coming here and sharing their time, their knowledge, their expertise with us at the American Theatre Wing Seminar on Working in the Theatre, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. This is just one of the many programs year-round of the American Theatre Wing. Thank you all for coming.